Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We come to you now from the fall. When everything is better, right? That's what we've been told. <laughs> That's what I was banking on from <laughs> March where September would somehow be better. Um, look, we didn't know things. I didn't know things were, were playing the cards as they're dealt, and the game is changing, and so is the cards. But here we are, the fall preview, and I think it does impact um, how we're going to talk about the books we are interested in for the fall, because so many, a lot of these books got moved back from earlier in the spring, summer, back to the fall. I think publishing itself was banking <laughs> yeah. on the fall being the fall. I mean, do you feel that way? Yeah. I was talking to a bookseller friend this week who was saying like September 1st is maybe the biggest release day of the year this mm. year. And September is always really big. But this year it has all the, like a bunch of the titles that were intended to come out in September, a bunch of titles that were mm. intended to come out and, and be bigger books of the spring, but got bumped to the fall. Then and there's stuff that might normally have come out like in October or November, but it's an election year, so we're getting it early. Or, mm-hmm. And now there are also a crop of books that were intended for fall that have been bumped to like March. So it's this is not the preview that like if we had had to schedule out our full year's worth of preview shows in January, this is not the preview mm-hmm. we would have scheduled <laughs> or it's not the list mm-hmm. we would have scheduled because um, things are moving around. But bi- a lot of, I think, great titles and yeah it'd be interesting to see how how the fall shapes up before we get into specifics i was looking um i think we both looked at a variety of sources mm-hmm. this is not meant to be i don't know kind of a this is not meant to be a authoritative or representative in a wider reading world kind of list i don't think there's a couple of these we have on there because they're noteworthy and we might want to talk about them for a second but i think this is you and i looking at the movie screen through our own fingers and picking out which parts totally. we want to look at and yeah. in which we we don't i guess with that having been said there are a lot of titles i guess i was left feeling like outside of the jesse which is, I think, the lit fic book mm-hmm. of the fall. And then the the Marilyn Robinson Jack, we'll talk about them both, Yeah, which is my number one draft pick in Same. terms of I'm most interested to read. Outside of those two, I'm a lot that I'm super interested in, but it feels like it's one and two, and then you could sort of drop down a whole bunch. Like NBA drafts where there's maybe one or two great players at the top, and then it's a lot of, you, you know, whatever suits you. Um, after that. Yeah, I feel the exact same way. Those are my top two for probably the year, actually, not just the fall mm. um, that I'm most excited about. And everything else, I feel like you could mix and match. Um, we have a big list here that we won't even get to all of them, but you could mix and match and have a great reading season right. from any right. of these. But um, especially right now like so much of my reading and we've talked about this is just like mood related and what like what like who, who whose voice do I feel like tolerating inside my head right now yeah in addition right. to everything else that like I it's still a mystery to me which of these I'm gonna end up reading um quickly but I know which ones I think I would want to start with and maybe that's a good way to proceed after we do a sponsor here in a minute is we kind of go by like well let's let's take care of our two draft choices talk about them and then like 
the ones you may be in order of being most surprised if you don't ever end up reading it. Maybe that's one way of uh, tackling the list at the, uh, at the end here. All right, let's do our sponsor and then we'll get into it. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books, and so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high-stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players, but what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive, even the help of Guillén Santángel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Young Readers. So this book I'm about to tell you about is giving five worlds meets spirited away realness. It's about a girl fighting her way back home after getting trapped in the spirit world. It follows Anzu, who's moved to a new town during Oban, a time for families to remember and celebrate their ancestors. And ever since her Abachan died, Oban has lost its magic. She doesn't feel much like celebrating anymore. So while avoiding holiday festivities, Anzu spots a stray dog down the street, a dog that seems to be staring right at her. So when she chases it, she slips and falls down a bridge, losing consciousness. And when she awakes, she's in the Shinto underworld known as Yomi. The stray dog, she finds out, is actually the gatekeeper of Yomi, and he warns her to return to the human realm before it's too late. Like I said, Miyazaki realness, um, I'm super excited for this. So make sure to pick up Anzu in the Realm of Darkness by Mai K. Nguyen. And thanks again to Penguin Young Readers for sponsoring this episode. Look, it's no surprise. We've been talking about it since we found out in May. What May was that, Rebecca, about the uh, Jack? Oh, I don't even remember. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Sometime in the spring. Yeah. But we had an on-air, you know, live-to-tape reaction. I think Lib dropped in um, one of the channels mm-hmm. that, that the book had been announced. We long had wondered, had hoped. I don't think I'd quite gotten to suspected that this book would be coming out. The fourth Mm-mm. book in the Gilead series feels, for a lot of reasons, if you've been following along with the Gilead series, like it would probably be the last one, I would guess, but we'll see how it goes. The natural conclusion, um, basically, Jack Boughton is the black sheep of his family, um, and he went away and married a black woman in a time when that wasn't done, and has come back in the course of the stories to reconcile or just reckon with his childhood and family. Um, I'm very excited to read it. I will confess this. I'm kind of nervous about it in this regard. It's Mm -hmm. a different, it's a different world about writing about race um, than it was even two years ago, let alone 10 years ago when Gilead got underway. Marilyn Robinson is extremely good. She's extremely sensitive writ large but that doesn't mean it's going to be handled necessarily well. I think there's a there's a chance that it's not handled well 
Um, and I'm, I'm nervous about that. I'm hopeful that it will be. But that piece of me, that adds a little bit of extra spice to the anticipation, I have yeah. to say, at this point. Yeah, I'm nervous slash curious. And yep. I'm trying to shift the balance to being more curious <laughs> than mm-hmm. nervous about it. Um, I have just started rereading Gilead in anticipation of this. And then I'm going to you know, work my way through Home and Lila as well. And I did not know like how badly my soul <laughs> needed a shot of Marilyn Robinson right now. Like I yeah. had an inkling... But I really needed it. And then, of course, I had forgotten that there is like a two-paragraph chunk at the near the beginning of Gilead where the, um, Reverend Ames is talking about the living through the flu pandemic mm-hmm. of 1918. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't escape it even for one, <laughs> for one novel. Um, but it's, it's so, so lovely. Um, if you're listening to this and you're like at all interested in this series, I heartily recommend this is a good moment for a Gilead read um, or a reread as it is mm-hmm. for us. Um, yeah, I'm I, and I think th- this series or books set in the not so distant American past present a special complication because there's the way that the characters yeah. will think and talk about That's race right as an honest representation of the place and time that they live in. And then there is what kind of authorial sensibility or commentary do we, or like framework do we get from Robinson about Mm -hmm. that? Um, And that will be, I'll be very interested and curious. I have this hope, you know, she is buds with Barack Obama. And I'm like holding on to this idea that Barack Obama has read this draft, like not that it should rest on his shoulders to approve that Marilyn Robinson handled race correctly at all. But like that, that's one thing that's helping me feel a little bit better about it is I think there's a possibility um, that not just he but I think she's in community with um, with folks that will be honest with her and hold her accountable to that. So I'm hopeful for it. Yeah. I think so too. Um, I'm fascinated to see what it does, what the future of this series might be. Um, So that's, that's number one for both of us in terms of ongoing, you know, multi-year anticipation and investment. Number two, I don't know if you want to say anything about it that we haven't, we've talked about Transcendent Kingdom by Jesse in a variety of contexts, not, not at any length. Um, But after the, multi-factor generation and place spanning minor miracle. And I only say minor because mm-hmm. it was relatively short as a, as a book that home, that um, home going was and is um, transcendent kingdom is also a, an incredible flex of a title, uh, not only kingdom, yeah. but a transcendent one. So it gives you a sense of elevation and loftiness uh, in, in a lot of different ways. I don't have really any concerns about this book being able to pull it off. The sophomore efforts can be difficult, but boy, Homegoing was so sure-footed for being so complicated that it kind of feels like she could do whatever. That's that's where I'm going. That's where I'm coming to Transcendent Kingdom with. Yeah, I feel the same way, and I'm actively avoiding knowing what Transcendent Kingdom totally. is about <laughs> because I just trust Yah Jesse so much to do it. I was thinking about how Homegoing came out in a crop of. I think it was a year that there were a a handful of like million dollar debut novels that Mm -hmm. we heard lots about. And it wasn't the only good one. Um, Behold the Dreamers by Mbolo Mbue was one that got a lot of news. I'm pretty sure those were the same year. They were. Um, But Homegoing is the one that like that I've continued to think about. Um, And Yajessi's writing is writing that I think, you know, will stand the test of time or at least has stood it so far. And Surefooted is the perfect 
word for it. That was such a trick that yeah. she pulled off in the way that Homegoing was laid out. And it was it definitely one of those debuts where you're like, how is this someone's debut novel? Like, mm. this could be the pinnacle of someone's career. And you'd be like, yes, they spent 40 years working up to being able to do this. <laughs> um, so that she started off that way was just phenomenal. And yeah, I don't have any worries about sophomore slump from this one. I think if you're worried at all, you don't name your book Transcendent Kingdom. <laughs> and why would be? You got a million dollar advance. The book was great. It sold well. What, what do you have to yeah. be worried about um, no. at this point? So those are our top two. Um, and after that, I think we're in the realm of, or actually, let's do this. At the ones that maybe we're not as interested in that, you know, are going to get headlines, are getting reviews, going to be talked about in the wider reading world. Maybe some of these we can we can name check real quick. We talked about one just the pre-show, um, the new Ferrante, the lying life of adults. I like my brilliant friend. I didn't read the whole series. I read the first one, and I felt like I got a taste of it. Um, maybe at some point I'll revisit the rest, though. If I'm not now, good lord. Um, when <laughs> sounds like the reviews have been pretty good. Um, yeah, not in the in the the wealth of choices I have in literary fiction always, but this year especially. I don't know that this one's going to rise enough above to to make it rise to the to the top of my TBR consciousness in any particular way, Rebecca. What about you? I don't care. Okay. Um, and this is just personal. It's just a personal preference thing. Like I couldn't get excited about the concept of the Ferrante. Mm-hmm. Was it a quartet? The was yep. it four books? Yep, yep, yep. The Neapolitan um, quartet. Some of that was that I definitely that I didn't get tipped off to it before the buzz was big, and it just takes a long time for buzz like that to wear off mm-hmm. um, before I can come back around to like maybe this thing is good. Um, and it wasn't just all of the buzzy McBuzzerson. So I might get there at some point, but I just like don't have Ferrante fever, and at this point, I'm I'm not open to it right now. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, just not um, a thing that, uh, yeah, not a thing for me. That's one, I guess, maybe that was the only one we had on here that was sort of, uh, it's going to be a thing in the, in the reader's book world. Like, we're also not doing the book world, you know, like the, the selling stuff. Like, I'm sure there's some James Patterson novel and oh, some, yeah. you know, no, all the, the, those are going to sell. Um, we don't have a lot of YA here because that's who we are. Um, anything else we want to just sort of mention yeah. before we get into it? Well, yeah, unless it happens to be one that you're super excited about. I think we're going to hear a lot about Piranesi by Susanna yeah. Clark. Um, big, long-awaited follow-up to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I know nothing about the plot of that either, mm-hmm. um, but getting a follow-up from her, I think, is a is going to be a big deal in some reading circles, but that's not... Um, but that's not part of my Venn diagram. Yeah, I am excited <laughs> so. for it. I, I really like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell a million years ago. I mean, I think it's been 20, has it been 20 years, 15, 20 years? I, yeah, I think it has been. Yeah, Bob read it in college. Yeah, at this point, um, again, I he- I've heard good buzz. I think Lib on Instagram said it's good, but don't go into it go, go into it knowing nothing. So that's what I've tried to do. Mm. So maybe a good entree into the, our more idiosyncratic picks. That one is like... I will be interested in in reading that, you know, pretty contemporaneously when it comes out. It's fun to be on the front wave of something like that. I, you know, I don't know the story of Susanna Clark at all. As someone who likes to know the stories of these sorts of situations, that book was like a comet out of nowhere. It sold remarkably well. You still see it, you know, crop up at the used tables and garage sales and you know those big black and white hardcovers at the time it was a very big deal because there was two different dust jackets there was a white one and a black one and that was part of the thing it was kind of wild a very long um, fantasy novel featuring two magicians kind of uh, pretty light on the magic I, I know there's various ways of schematizing 
how fantasy heavy something is, but this was very light, very close to historical fiction. What, what if you know a couple people could do some magic? Um, I don't know anything about this, and I think it'll be interesting. So for the fantasy crossover world, that's probably the big book of the year. And from here, it all it is mostly stuff we ourselves are, are looking forward to in a mix. I mm-hmm. think I could have guessed some of yours. Um, you probably could have guessed. <laughs> some of mine so let's go in this order you're up first so after we've got those out of the Mm -hmm. way which will you be surprised no cheating because you already read the leave the world behind will you be surprised if you don't actually end up reading it at some point Where, where would you go from here Ooh, i would be surprised if i didn't read the claudia ranking okay which is which it's called Just Us. Um, what's the subtitle? An American Conversation. Uh, and I think a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago, we were like musing out loud about how Claudia Rankine was like yeah. doing something with right. some sort of study about white supremacy. And it looks like this book is the result of um, some of that thinking, at least. Uh, it is about urging us to start exploring like conversations and discussions about white supremacy that allow us to somehow find a way to all be in the room together mm-hmm. uh, rather than leaning into further divisiveness and being stuck. Um, so it's it's like cross-genre, multi-genre. There's poems, essays, images. Um, here's a part of the description says like the voices and rebuttals of others. So white men in first class responding to and with their white male privilege, a friend's explanation of her infuriating behavior at a play hmm. women confronting the political currency of dyeing their hair blonde, all running alongside fact checked notes and commentary that complement Rankine's own text, complicating notions of authority and who gets the last word. Um, this sounds like it's just going to be a super interesting book to look yeah. at much less spend yeah. time in <laughs> and i like that this that mix of approaches it's really fascinating to see an author of a work like this that have their own work be like fact checked in the yes. margins of it um and I, here's the last line of the synopsis is um Sometimes wry, often vulnerable, and always prescient, Just Us is Rankine's most intimate work, less interested in being right than in being true, being together. And I am, mm. I like could not be more interested in what this looks like. It sounds like it could be really powerful. Yeah, I, it, it sounds like Rankine is charting her own way forward in these kinds of discussions. And yeah. I don't know, not, I don't know coming out of that even really what to expect in terms of tone yeah. and point of view and conclusion or argument or, you know, sensibility, which is exciting for someone who has as prodigiously gifted as Rankine to be seeming to be interested in operating on a, on a slightly different wavelength, even then in this moment, especially it, it is really exhilarating um, as a night. Yeah. Like, what are the white men in first class responding to? Yeah. Like, what did what did she ask them? Was she even the one who asked them? Who asked? Like, what are all? Where are these conversations? Or what is she imagining? I'm so 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 curious. I think it's going to be great. Yeah, for me, I've had this on my radar for a long time. Um, the Man Who Ate Too Much by John Birdsall, which is a um, biography of James Beard, who is. Ooh. I don't know, like one of the most important people in the world of food over the last, you know, half century. He was among the cohort that kind of introduced the idea of American foodieism, for lack of a better term, to America uh, in the mid-century. I've read several books in which he is adjacent 
um, Julia Child books, M.K. Fisher, Fisher books, um, books about Provence of, of this time. Mm-hmm. He is a very influential um, chef. Um, I don't Was he a critic? Yeah, kind of a critic, too, at the same time. Um, a larger-than-life figure, a man of enormous appetites, both literal and figurative. Um, he's a Portland native, so it's it's close to home here. Um, the, James, the James Beard Awards are the most prestigious awards in the world of food. I mean, kind of the equivalent of the Pulitzer Prizes. Mm-hmm. Um, and he lived at a fascinating time. He was a fascinating guy. And from what I've seen of the excerpts of this, it's written in a way, a conversational introspective way that is just kind of what I like for in a profile kind of I it's a biography but almost more in the vein of a long New Yorker profile than a historical kind of a work which you know there are uses of both but from a readerly point of view um I'm really fascinated to see really wonderful cover design that's evocative of the 60s yeah. and 70s New Yorker stuff so I I would be shocked if I don't actually um actually experience this one i would guess i'm going to do this on audio as i tend to do most of my nonfiction, especially biography or memoir but that's um the man who ate too much by john birdsall that comes out october 6th i keep checking it this summer i've been keeping to check to see if it's coming out and always frustrated it's not until Mm. october but october coming um and so before (laughs) too long it's going to be on my uh phone yeah, that would have been a fun summer book. Somehow, this had not made it to my radar. So I'm delighted to be yes. learning about this because great. this is definitely in our <laughs> shared yes. wheelhouse. Definitely, yeah. definitely. That sounds great. Hmm. Where are you going to go? You know, I'm. where am I going to go? I'm going to go to If Then by Jill hmm. Lepore, which I just learned about in the process of doing the research for this show, but she's, you know, great historian. She had these truths um, out a couple of years ago. And this is a history of the Simulmatics Corporation and how it invented the future, Mm. but basically a look at um, the origins during the Cold War of data mining and using algorithms for the kinds of things that lead into the ways that we use algorithms now. So um, Simulmatics was launched during the Cold War. They mined data, targeted voters, have manipulated consumers, destabilized politics. This is all straight from the synopsis and disordered knowledge decades before Facebook, Google and Cambridge Analytica. And this is like the long lost backstory Mm. of how they did it, why they did it, sort of a proto-Silicon Valley arrogance situation starts in 1959 with um, social scientists founding the corporation and, you know, jumping into like understanding people and then using what you understand Mm. to manipulate them. Um, They believed that they had invented the A-bomb of the social sciences and did not predict that it would take decades to detonate. Mm. Um, Definitely timely. I'm super interested. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Um, let's see. My next one, I will be surprised if I don't read this, but it may be a while because O'Neill's Razor has a really hard problem here um, <laughs> with Black Sun by Rebecca Roanhorse, which is coming out October mm-hmm. 13th, which is the first book in a new series from her. It sounds fantastic, a fantasy slash sci-fi story based on pre-Columbian cultures that also has some magic and space. Um, I interviewed her for, uh, recommended a long time ago, I followed her career with great interest. She had her initial, um, I think a duology 
Trail of Lightning. I cannot remember the second one for the life of me. I'm trying to think extemporaneous. Anyway, and then she went and worked in IP for a little bit. She did a Star Wars book, and she did uh, a Rick uh, Reardon Presents book. And this is a return to her own original, kind of under her own shingle um, series. And I don't know. I, I, I don't... I don't know what to do. I really want to read this. I really want to support the book early. Maybe I'll buy it and just not read it. Maybe that's what I'll do. I'll buy it and I'll keep Ooh. it there. Keep it on my shelf mm-hmm. so the ducats get put in the right um, cap uh, going forward. But then I can slowly collect them and then dive in when it's all coming. So I'm really excited to see this. What a wonderful cover. It just looks awesome. It just looks great. I'm so excited um, to get my hands on this, um, if not my eyeballs, until it's all it's all done. Um, so that's Black Sun by Rebecca Roanhorse. Go check it out if you're interested in sci-fi and fantasy. I love the idea of building the series on your shelf and then getting to see it like be completed and yeah. then finally start. <laughs> Sounds kind of lovely. All right. Um, before we do the next one for you, let's let's take a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him, unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloan Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate or tempt her more than a certain billionaire heir with his stupid dimples and laid back attitude. She may be forced to work with him, but she'll never fall for him because he's a client and that's all he'll ever be. Right? Right, girl. Like we all know. So just in case you didn't know, author Anna Wong is the best-selling author and book talk viral author of the Twisted Love series, the King of Sin series, Miss Wong, got it going on, okay? Make sure to check out King of Sloth by Anna Wong. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies. And that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Okay, Rebecca, what's next on your would be surprised if eventually doesn't make its way into your into your face? Office of Historical Corrections by Hmm. Danielle Evans. Um, She's the author of Before You Suffocate Your Own Fool Self, which came out a few years ago. (laughs) Like one of the great book titles ever, (laughs) probably. Um, Really smart uh, analysis in her fiction of 
the complexities of human relationships and then all the specifics of those, um, particularly race, class, culture, history, and how those things intersect in, you know, love and grief. Um, I really, really like her writing and I'm excited for I just think it would be nice to spend some time with her brain, um, a collection of short stories. <laughs> I feel that way about some writers. Like, yeah, I do just want to hang out with your brain for a while. That's interesting. Um, and yeah. yeah, and there's a there's a piece in this one called Boy Goes to Jupiter in which a white college student tries to reinvent herself after a photo of her in a Confederate flag bikini goes viral. Mm. Uh, so like, it's just that like very timely, very smart um, look at like imagining of fictional moments that place you squarely in the present moment. It comes out November 10th. Um, and how I'm feeling on November 10th is going to largely be <laughs> a product of how I was feeling on November 3rd, I think. Point. So um, when I read this is a, currently a big shruggy man. Uh, I hope that I will be like very happily running into Daniel Evans's arms on November 10th and ready for um, some fiction. I kind of wish it were coming out sooner mm -hmm. um, so that it wasn't an open question about when I was going to get to it. Um, <laughs> but like, can we just have all the books now and then maybe have a publishing hiatus until January 20th? Um, if I were in charge, that's what I would do. But yeah, yeah most Daniel of Evans. The, there's, we've only got three between us of these 20 that are after the election. Um, that's one. You have one coming up. I guess I'll do the next one. And, and I'm not even mm -hmm. sure it's going to come out then. It's been moved around a couple of times. I couldn't find a firm date. I'm going to put it here because... It's, it's, it's very much in the vein I like to mine. Um, it's called Sweat, A History of Exercise by Bill Hayes. <laughs> um, one of those, one of those you know, I don't think it's quite a microhistory. Maybe it is. I don't know. It seems like it's more of an intellectual or, or behavioral history as much as anything. But basically he charts the history of, of, um, of thinking about whether or not exercise is good or bad for you, how we understood it. Going back, I guess, the, the big bang of thinking, at least that's uh, in the historical record um, that Hayes is mining, it's like some 14th century Italian philosophers are extolling the virtues of exercise and how we've come to think about exercise um, over time. So this is, this is very much something that I'm going to be interested in for a variety of reasons, but like, I really like charting the course of history and ideas using a specific lens. Um, and one that, you know, you think about exercise, it touches physiology, it touches culture, um, it touches our understanding of medicine and nutrition and of vanity, um, and of identity. So, um, as much as anything, it is a, kind of a, a cultural history of how we relate to our own bodies um, through, through the idea of what it means to move them and whether you should and why you should. Um, so it's, it, was, it's our, it came out in the UK last year. It could come out in December, maybe January. I saw it's coming out in India in 2022. I did a lot of homework to find out when it was actually coming out. Um, so at some point, the, the, the probability cloud that is sweat, a history of exercise, will, will firm up here in the States. And I will definitely be checking that one out. I mean, that sounds like a perfect thing to read going into New Year's resolutions. It, it, it would make sense. Like a December 31st, you could uh, Kylie yep. read that stuff right there and uh, <laughs> get it going into the new year and see how we do. The phenomenon no one wants to have named after no, them getting really your true. book published on yeah. the last day of the year. Unless you, are, unless you are zeroing in on some sort of New Year's resolution kind of situation. This is a wonderful book for people like me who don't really make New Year's resolutions. 
Um, but kind of like the idea that maybe they would someday be the kind of person who makes and follows through <laughs> on New Year's revolution. So I can sit and say, like reading about marathons. Um, so sweat history of exercise. By Bill well, you just read the Murakami, so you're yeah, right it's in true. My yeah, my my uh, exercise uh, uh, corpus is. Um, yeah, more developed than my calves it's, at this point. That's yeah, for sure. It's really just exercise as a concept. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's right. An intellectual exercise. That's right. All right. Where should we go next? Let's see. Uh, let's see. I'm, I don't know if I'm still in the realm of I'll be surprised if I okay. don't eventually read this, but I'm interested enough that it made my list. And I really like this writer. Um, Can't Even How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation by Anne Helen Peterson. Hmm. This comes out uh, September 22nd. Um, she it has been a uh, BuzzFeed culture writer. She's also a former academic and she just like two weeks ago um, left BuzzFeed to go fully solo. Um, she has a great letter, uh, a great newsletter that she's now doing several times a week. Um, I guess this is also just a pitch for Anne Helen Peterson. I've loved her writing for many years. Um, and she was experiencing a lot of burnout herself mm. um, and then started, you know, as journalists and sociologists and writers do started talking to other people about the experience of burnout and trying to dig into like what what was it in the cultural water that was making millennials so like universally susceptible to burnout and it's not like they're millennials and they're special snowflakes like spoiler alert it's about problems in society um so the book is an examination of cultural shifts that got us to this place um the pressures that sustain it and why we need significant changes and also what those changes might look like. Um, I have gotten to read like little previews of it in some of her newsletters and some of the thinking. It's been interesting to watch her thinking about this um, and her understanding of the phenomenon of burnout develop um, sort of in real time as she was sharing research um, in those newsletters. So I I think I will read this at some point, uh, probably will be an audio for me. Mm. Um, I like nonfiction on audio, but she brings a really sharp um, perspective uh, that rejects often rejects just like the big easy narrative of like well they're you know they're all millennials and the internet and they're lazy in the end and asks like actually what's going on um so i'm i like those kinds of nuanced looks at um things that are often just spun into catchy headlines um it'll be nice to see some stuff some substance there so yeah um next up for me again i'm sure i will read this at some point it may not be in hardback it might be in paperback it it will be i'm in the mood to read it um i really like brian washington's um story collection lot um mm. set in houston this one is his first novel lot just came out um last year and uh obama named it one of his favorite books of the year he won the literary young lions award with 535 a lot of accolades for that book you know, this is a pattern we see. You move from the, the well-regarded short story collection to the first novel. Sometimes mm-hmm. it goes great and sometimes it doesn't. Um, initial, initial, initial buzz here is really strong. Uh, a Murderer's Row blurbs, by the way. Kylie Reed, Jasmine Guillory, Jacqueline Woodson, Tommy Orange. I mean, forget about it. Um, so it's set in Houston. Um, Benson Mike, they're two young men who live together. They're a couple. One's a chef. Um, the other one is a, a, a daycare teacher, um, and it's about multiculturalness and relationshipness, domestic partnership. It just, I don't know. It's it's this one of these like it feel. I, I I think there's a way in which 
this is going to be like, you know, the domestic fiction of like the 70s, but through the lens of what we understand about the multiplicity of experience mm. in America now. Like, I, I think, I don't know that it's going to be overtly about um, racism and homophobia. Of course, I think they'll be a part of it. But from what I've read of the blurbs and the initial reviews is that those are factors, but not the center. And the center is the relationship between these two, these two men. So I'm very fascinated to see what Brian Washington does, an immensely talented writer who's going to have a long career. And, you know, because of the way that we consume and talk about books writ large, novels are the coin of the realm. You can write a lot of great short stories and people write a lot of great short stories. But the novels are where they're the ones that tend to get turned into movies and they're the ones that tend to get the Pulitzer Prize and tends to get the whatever. So the transition to a full length story is important for a young writer, a talented writer who mm-hmm. is, you know, an up and comer. So I'm going to read this for sure. I really recommend checking out a lot, um, especially if, if novels are a little less surmountable than they were at one point for you. Short stories is a good way into that. Um, he's really, really good. I would be very, very none surprised to hear about this when we start talking about awards when the calendar mm. turns to 2021. So there you go. There's your hot, there's your um, your horse <laughs> handicapping for uh, races coming uh, uh, to, 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 to publishers downs uh, in the spring. I will take it. I was just thinking the other day about some of the, like the great domestic fiction mm-hmm. about the 70s and set in the 70s. And then I was thinking about my summer of James Salter a few Ah. years ago and how what I want is for someone to write like the 2020 version of light years, like a relationship, Mm. but now. So I don't know if you're like a great writer and you're looking for an idea. (laughs) Well, it is, it is interesting as, um, you know, literary fiction has become multi-genre. There's more speculative and mystery and science fiction and fantasy that gets moved in the, the, the high, I don't know. That that like, that space has been moved around. It's not gone. It's just been moved around. Yeah, a bit. and it it's interesting. Like the stuff of relationships is kind of the same that it's always been, but <laughs> right. it's also super. It's located in a really different world mm-hmm. now than it was. Like a, a a deep literary meditation on a long marriage. Um, yeah. Set in New York City should look really different in yes. 2020 than yes. it did in the 70s it probably shouldn't be set um, in new york city for example like houston right. maybe like, you know i mean really i mean not to not to be <laughs> right. smug about yeah it, but, it would um, be yeah it would be super interesting to read something like that anyway that's a memorial by brian washington his book of short stories which is out now is called a lot um, so all right you're up I'm going to have to pick that up. Let's see. Well, I've already talked on this show yeah, about do it, one do of it. the ones on my list already. So that was Leave the World Behind by uh, Rahman Alam, which comes out October 6th, about a family from New York who go on a summer vacation to a house in the Hamptons. They've rented a house in like a pretty remote area. And while they're there, their cell phones stop working. The internet stops working. They think that it must have been some kind of attack or like first they think it's just like a blackout and then it it becomes clear there's some kind of attack and then it actually comes to light that nuclear war is beginning and you're with this family for like three days um it's completely terrifying spoiler alert and uh, trigger warning bad things happen to kids um i didn't i went into that one blind and like it 
it was good because it just held me by the throat and I was stuck on my couch reading for a day and a half. And that's the thing I wanted to be doing that weekend. But um, like very scary, very effective um, and a lot darker than his first two novels. I was not expecting uh, I was not expecting that, mm-hmm. um, which is, I guess, what you get sometimes when you go into a book blind based on your relationship to an author's previous work. I really enjoyed um, Alam's first two novels also. Um, and they're just a little breezier uh, than than this was. But um a good book, definitely the right timing, I think, for fall, like when you're going to sit down on a like, blustery weekend mm. and have, if you want to have some existential terror about something that's not coronavirus, like that was kind of the relief of reading this kind of scary book was like, oh, I'm just scared about something different for a little while. <laughs> um, or maybe you want to save it until after November 3rd and assess the threat level. <laughs> but... <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we should do a whole different reading uh, reading plan episode after the election. Uh, it's um, true. It's it's <laughs> it is the way the world could go here in the good old U.S. of A. over the next twelve weeks is a little vertiginous to consider in it in, in the in the fullness of possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, speaking of the fullness of possibility, kind of bridging off, um, leave the world behind. A literary fiction writer. You know, using elements of speculative or you know near future dystopia or whatever else you want to call it, the silence by Don DeLillo was just announced, or at least I just found out. There's it was made ABC News front page, reminding mm. me again that DeLillo um, is a titan um, in our draft or discussion of the greatest American living American novelist. DeLillo's name came up, and um, I think I don't think we dismissed him so much as moved on from him but when like say underworld came out in 2000 or 2001 after libra after white noise and then we got um end zone and zero k later shaping up to be the, the the to be to have the crown um and i think for a lot of reasons you know I think it makes sense that that whitehead is but Delo is no slouch is what i'm saying and this book sounds very interesting <laughs> Um, the, the, the press for it says he started writing this before COVID-19, but the pitch is, you know, it starts out in a, in a Manhattan, uh, you know, apartment, sort of intellectual, liberally kind of people sitting around talking. Um, it's in Super Bowl Sunday in the year 2020. And then all of a sudden, all the electronics go out and the book is called The mm-hmm. Silence. And it's about what happens when these digital connections that have been layered on top of, have infiltrated, whatever verb you want to use, and I think it's an exploration of that verb. Have they strengthened? Have they complicated? Have they uh, corrupted the ties that bind us together? What happens when those things fall away? And I'm not sure if it's a horror uh, show. I'm not sure if it's like a Borges kind of fable um, I can see it going many different ways. Dillo sometimes does that. Some, like in White Noise, there's you know, the airborne toxic event that's both literal and figurative, and he uses a metaphor, but also to, to move the action along. Dillo's a master. I've enjoyed, I think, everything I've ever read by his. I will, in my life, read everything he's ever written. This is something he will have written. Ergo, I will have read this. <laughs> um, so to, to use a little, uh, uh, to use a little uh, uh, boy, uh, symbolic logic, there. Um, I'm really interested <laughs> to see this um, as well. 
by the transitive property of TBR lists. Yeah, that's right. If then conditionals are very powerful um, for good or for ill. If you're not careful, yeah. uh, you know, he's Delulu is a gap in my reading that I've mm. always intended to fill. Um, so I guess maybe the answers to these questions are different. But like, where would you tell me to start, oh, and where would you tell man, a general that's reader a to great start? Great question. I, I, I would like to not answer that right now. Uh, Okay. Let let me think about This one is slight, I should say. It's 128 pages, so I think it's going to be, you know, it's novella lengths, which leads me to think it is more of a fable-ish kind of a a situation. Um, Man. I mean, White Noise is his magnum opus. It'll be the one for which he is probably remembered if one survives the, the, the erosion of time. I really liked Underworld. That came out a very important time for me as a young... Um, as a young reader, budding scholar, intellectual critic, someone who's thinking about it as more than just um, some some dummy who likes to read. I was some dummy who liked to think about their who liked to read. Um, let me think about that. I, I'm not sure right. what to, to go with you. Maybe Great Jones Street, one of the earlier ones. Anyway, uh, so that Silence <laughs> Novel comes out October 20th. Um, fortuitous timing, I guess, there. Um, again... <laughs> hard to know how it's going to feel to read about a different kind of, you know, ma- losing our, losing our cell connections probably isn't disaster. I don't think, but um, a different kind of pause, a different kind of severing, I guess, um, mm. than what we're experiencing now. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Wife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. You got one more on your list, and I'll kind of blow through a couple of mine. Yeah. 
yeah. And there's a couple on your list that I was like, oh man, that should have been on my list. <laughs> <All right. laughs> I know which <laughs> one you're talking about. Maybe you'll yep. pick that up here in a minute. <laughs> uh, here's one that's going to be really different when it comes out on December 1st, d- depending on what yeah, happens no on kidding, November 3rd. Yeah, no kidding, boy. <laughs> Right? Uh, Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America by Ijeoma Oluo. Um, Incredible cultural critic, activist, really wonderful writer. Her book, So You Want to Talk About Race, um, is one of the like formative books about how to talk about race now. Mm -hmm. uh, And for very good reason. And this is a look at, just to quote the description, because I can't do any better than it, what happens to a country that tells generation after generation of white men that they deserve power. Um, When success is divined by status over women, and people of color instead of actual accomplishments. Um, and she starts in the post-Reconstruction South uh, and then works through the next 50 years up to present day, mm. um, looking at the stories of cowboys in the West and then controversies over the NFL protests and um, backlash and response to the rise of women and people of color in politics um, to look at the consequences of white male supremacy on women, people of color. And this is important, folks, on white men themselves. Um, I really appreciate that she's always coming from the lens that oppressive systems are bad for everyone who participates and is affected by them, including the people who are in the most powerful or the, the most powerful positions to do the most oppressing. It's still bad. It's not good for anybody uh, to be in this system. And Olawo looks at that and looks at um, what we should be doing differently. Um, mm. So real costs of, um, you know, how I think you can see examples like in the business world and in popular culture um, very readily, but she's going to look at a lot of things <laughs> to define a bold new vision of American greatness, uh, which is a really good tagline for this kind of book. <laughs> Um, that really is a really you know that's one of those ideas that's kind of been out there i guess you know the the mm-hmm. me, the the tyranny of mediocrity that is enabled by sexism and and um, um racism of various kinds i haven't seen quite a full expression like this so um i don't know if i'm surprised by that but i'm thrilled to see it and i will definitely be reading this too i don't know if i said that at the top but that's one that i myself would be surprised if i don't um, do on audio eventually in some form or another. It sounds like an audio kind of a title for me. Yeah, there was a book from, I want to say like Harvard Business Press or something like that a few years ago that was titled something, I'll have to find the exact title, but it was titled like, Why Do So Many in- Incompetent Men oh, Become Leaders? Yeah, right. Um, that's what it was. Why Do So Many in- Incompetent Men Become Leaders? And it's like, it's a great question. And they it's answered in that book through a more academic mm-hmm. um, perspective. And that's the kind of, like, I I kind of wish that they had given Oluo's book a less confrontational title yeah. than Mediocre, because I think that there's a risk of missing some of the folks who actually, like, might be affected and converted by this message. Um and a title that's as confrontational as why do so many incompetent men become leaders like really, really runs that risk. And the content of that was more academic. So yeah, you're right that like it's in the water. Um, Liz Plank had a book out last year called For the Love of Men from Toxic to a More Masculinity. That was also really interesting. Um, But this uh, Ijeoma Oluo's take on it um, sounds like it's going to be more comprehensive. Um, I hope that it will catch on and that we'll see... um, Lots of folks 
exploring it. Yeah, let me burn through a couple idiosyncratic ones on my side, and then you can you can pick up the the ones that I maybe scooped <laughs> up from you unknowingly. This is one a thousand percent. I will read on audio. I will read this structure of title, or I will listen to this structure of title. about any subject (laughs) any genre any field of human inquiry the story of x and integers that's i will read that (laughs) that thing i will read so this is the story of life in ten and a half actually this isn't integers this is just a number um in ten and a half species by marion taylor she's a professor um i think of zoology it's coming out uh, i know she's at mit come october 20th I've liked the history of the world in six glasses. I like how we get to now by Stephen Johnson. I like all these kinds of things where um, I can do a, let's be honest, a ginned up version of X for dummies uh, in, in, you know, this kind of where you spend a little bit of time. It organizes, um, it organizes a field of inquiry around representative examples, which I really like tends to be very good, very good for the hey, did you know crowd of which you mm-hmm. and I um, <laughs> are, are charter members. Um, I've long had this idea to do a history of, uh, of books in 50 books, something like this, like something like this. It would not be surprising to any of you. I'd, don't steal that. Please don't do that. Um, but I just love this idea of caps- encapsulating the complexity of a field um, around some nuclei that you can you can deal with on its own terms. So that's the story of life and ten of species by Marianne Taylor. Um, once we if we if it's good, I was, wouldn't be surprised if you hear me talk about it. Moms, dads, and grads come mm. round um, in, in May. So looking forward to that one. Which of these? Okay, I've got two that I know you are probably interested in. Are you going to pick you or are you going to pick David? Which one do you want to pick? I'm going to I'm going to pick David. Yeah, I figured. I figured. Right? Yeah. I mean, this is going to be great. <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be should have, We should have talked about this earlier in the show maybe even. Actually, anyway, go go for it. I think we should have. Yeah, yeah like the gal actually I downloaded the galley like months ago. Oh, did you? <laughs> and, oh, okay. Yeah, okay. and I'm saving it for I have taken myself on a little getaway. Yeah. Weeks, I'm saving it for that. Because nothing better than a food memoir on a vacation. There's it, just, there really is. It's, it's a such rule. a great point. It's a wonderful point. This is Eat a Peach by David Chang, uh, chef behind the Momofuku Empire, host and star of Ugly Delicious on Netflix, also um, Chef's Table, mm-hmm. uh, I think a producer of Chef's Table. He was um, on an episode. I'm not sure what his relationship yeah. to the product anyway it doesn't matter just a titan yeah. of the modern food world a complicated guy mm-hmm. um thoughtful guy uh really interesting and i saw uh, helen rosner from who does food writing for the new yorker was saying on her instagram account this week that um she's friends with him in a way like that extends from just being like friendly with a chef mm-hmm. that she might have written about like they're actual friends and she was addressing some of the complexity saying like I feel great about my personal relationship with David Chang like the guy um, and I try not to think too much about David Chang the big fancy chef uh, and the sort of criticism that's existed in around his career um, in different capacities there uh, he tends to be in my experience of like reading and watching him and listening to some episodes of his podcast like pretty direct and open Mm -hmm. um, about and like very self-aware like pretty aware of like the challenges of his personality or of his own shortcomings and I think that um 
that stands in contrast to like the swaggering voices that we get mm. in food writing a lot, which I love, you know, like we've done entire hours of this podcast dedicated to Anthony Bourdain. Um, but I think it'll be, this feels to me like it could have a different kind of flavor than a lot of the chef memoirs that we get. And like the cover is a guy rolling <laughs> a peach up a hill like Sisyphus, which tells you something about how he feels about <laughs> the work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it. I am too. He's, an, he's a fascinating biography, how he came to be a chef. You taught English. Um, he majored in religious studies. So he has he has a lot of the characters that we've talked about and what can make for a great food memoir, which is you got to like you got to like the knife, but you kind of got to like the word too. Um, mm-hmm. That really makes him stand out. Not that you can't write a, a good one, but I think to write a really great one like the no reservations of the world, like the buttermilk graffitis of the world. Yeah. Um, you got to like the pen as much as, as you like um, the stove. And he does. And he has, I, I think there's going to be a lot to talk about and think about and enjoy in the book and revel and kind of roll around in the muddiness mm-hmm. of it um, as well. Uh, so that one, I, if I don't start listening to this on October 6th, I'd be shocked. So maybe it should really be right there behind um, Transcendent Kingdom and, and Jack, um, my my last idiosyncratic pick, you know, Jen Northington turned me on to this writer. Um, speaking of food, with her first book, um, her name is Marie Ndiaye, and she is French. Um, and the the book Jen recommend is called The Chef. I, I don't know how you say it. I don't know if you're supposed to say it with a French accent. It's C H E F F E, which is the subtitle is a cook's novel. Have you read this? Did, oh, did, I have did, not. Did Northington throw this at you? I'm kind of surprised she didn't. Um, she didn't. So this is, uh, it's the story of, quote unquote, a great female chef who was celebrated as one of the best in the world where men dominate and the way her pursuit of love, pleasure, and gustatory delights helped stage and shape her life and career told from the perspective of a former assistant. So it's like someone's writing a tell-all about a great female chef memoir, but it's fiction. So like there's multiple, wow. text- you're going to love this book. Okay. Actually. I really liked it. Um, it's only, it's not out in paperback yet, which, you know, shouts to you if you can move some units yeah. to go do that. But her follow-up book, actually, it's in translation, so I don't know if it came before or after the success of The Chef got some translation juice behind it. But this one's a thriller. It's called That Time of Year um, about a husband, uh, a, a husband who disappears in the middle of this village, um, and it becomes a community kind of a story. Uh, it's, a, it's a literary horror story about power of assimilation. Um, I think another thing that is, is you should know about Ndai that makes all of this interesting is she's black, too. And she writes about race from a fairly, you know, from my American point of view, I'm familiar with ways in which a, a race is written about, though I'm no expert and my learning is not complete. But at least I kind of have a sense of the terrain a little bit. And it's so interesting to see a different kind. Of, I don't know if she represents anything in the French world, in the French world of literary letters, but I think she's a wonderfully fascinating writer. I've read a little bit of her biography since like one of the, we talk about the most interesting person in the world um, award here. I think Marie mm-hmm. Ndai maybe is, a, is a, a candidate we need to, you know, again, we don't talk about work and translation here very much at all, which is, it is what it is. Um, but you realize there are other interesting people and the world is big and Marie Ndai is definitely <laughs> one of them. So that's coming out September 8th, 2020. Um, oh yeah. And the David Chang book is also September 8th. It looks like. Oh, I had October 6th. Well, that's great. It's even sooner. Yeah. Um, for, yeah. For my consumption there. Uh, last one. I snaked this from me. I think if you had remembered it, you would have had this on your list as well. 
<laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Uh, it's having and being had by Eulabus. Um, here, let me just read you the first line. You can't, of well, the can synopsis. we just talk about Eulabus for a minute? Again, yes, yeah. Talk about being on a different wavelength, right? She writes these. <laughs> what genre are these? They're like long, yeah. really good think cultural history piece takes, something like I don't even know what to call them. Yeah, they're like a take without an agenda. Right. Like, yeah. She feels like she's in the same. I don't know, like her pond is adjacent to the pond that like Gia Tolentino swims in, mm. but Tolentino has a point. Like, and I mean, not that Eulabis doesn't have a point, but like Gia Tolentino wants you to read her essay and like live your life differently mm-hmm. because you realized something like she's making an argument. She's making a case for like the way that we live now and the way that we should live. And Eulabis is like, chewing on an idea for the pleasure of chewing on it yeah in terror yeah that's and, a good yeah, way like, of putting it yeah like it's just she just likes the thinking and the untangling of the thing and you often do arrive at a new way of approaching something or a new take but it's uh like let's all noodle on this together and maybe we'll be different at the end but how we'll be different is a question <laughs> yes <And a, laughs> definitely yeah, it's, it's like a yeah. it's like a textual manifestation of curiosity. Um, you know, yes. I don't know how else yeah. to put it. Like Rankine's blurb is so telling. She calls it this expansive and intimate accumulation. Like she calls it an accumulation. I mean, God, poets, <laughs> what are you going to do? Forget about it. Right. Um, it is really, really fascinating. A couple of the the word meditation is used in a couple of the early reviews. I think that's probably the most familiar kind of language because. I guess, what do we talk about when we talk about meditations? It is not scholarly, right, necessarily. Right. Um, it's not even historical in that sense, or like the Bill Bryson-y kind of historical. Yeah. But and it's it using wander. history and using ideas and using philosophy and using analogy. Um, if Zadie Smith was less grounded in language, I think she could spin off like Eulabis does. Like it's also be like mm. Maggie Nelson, you're going to like Eulabis, yeah. right? I mean, it's a yes. like yeah. similar kind mm-hmm. of stylistic... Um, yeah, anyway. there are, I, yeah, there are essays where it's like, let us walk from point A to point B because I want you to arrive at point B. And then there are essays that are like, let's just wander around in the woods. Yeah. And the wandering is most of the point. And this is one of those writers. And I find it to be like, talk about a brain that I like to spend time with. Yeah. I find it to just be really wonderful to follow her in her thinking. Mm. I, I, I derailed you in, in wanting to do some bis um, interrogation <laughs> about her as a writer. What's this one about having and being had? Uh, well, the first line of the synopsis is, my adult life can be divided into two distinct parts, the time before I owned a washing machine and the time after. <laughs> and It's like the Maytag she... metamorphosis. If, if Kafka had um, uh, appliances... <laughs> show title so this she bought her first home and then she's questioning the value system that she has like bought into or participated in by having made that choice so it's an interrogation is a word that shows up in descriptions like this a lot too an interrogation of work leisure and capitalism. Mm. But I think that it really is a like Eulabis thinking out loud about 
the systems that we live in, her place in them, how she participates. What does it mean? Does she want to do things differently? Can you even do things differently? (laughs) Like, you know, like it it really has this, um, I think her writing has that quality of like, it's it's much cleaner, obviously, because someone has spent time like writing and cleaning up the language, but it has the flavor of like, a late night over a couple of glasses of wine where you're just like meandering your way through the ideas and like going to this other place and then working your way back to the original question. And then you go down this other path and maybe you, maybe you never make your way back to the original question, but you end up in a more interesting place and no one cares that you didn't answer the original question. (laughs) I think even the way that we're talking about talking about her. Yeah. 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 Well, we've talked in, we've talked in other context about um liking the high low mix you know in mm-hmm. zadie smith and jenny awful um and here it's not so much high low as it is rigorous and extemporaneous it feels like at, at the same time which i think captures a lot of our structures of feeling about the world at times it feels very yeah. contingent and at times it feels very um solid at the same time yeah it, it is I, I feel like and I don't know how much of it's performance. I've never heard her speak. I don't know how much of this is a stylistic mm. choice or it's more of a representation of her habits of mind. But it doesn't feel like, you know, there's that metaphor from um, David Foster Wallace of like the two fish and like this is water. Yeah. Like, like what's water? Eulabis always feels like she's recognizing that she's in, that we're in water and like sometimes it's getting mm-hmm. your flu shot and sometimes it's what the hell's going on with the washing machine. And she's just mm-hmm. in the habit of saying like, isn't it weird that X is just a part of her life that no one thinks about? And what if I did think about washing machines? And what if I did think about these quotidian taken for granted and yet embedded pieces of our lives. Um, again, I'd read like I would read, I would use, I would read Eulabis on any subject. I would very much like Eulabis to read a history of X and integer things about whatever <laughs> she wants to read. Um, but now I'm going to write that in my dream journal because I don't know that that's too, that's too pure yeah, for maybe my Maybe you can conjure like Eulabis, Leslie Jameson, yeah, and that's Zadie right. Smith, yeah, Maggie like Nelson, editing, Maggie Nelson. and Maggie Nelson all like appear in an anthology together. Mm. They are the ghosts of all the Christmases past, present, future, and dreamed for. <laughs> it, it really is. It would be it would be a litany of curiosity that is would be just so much in, in, into what I would want to read. Um, okay, well, I you know we 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 started strong, and darn it, if we didn't end strong there, well, yeah. good job us. Yeah, high five, high five. What? <laughs> Uh, you can find the list of books we talked about in the show notes, which is probably in your podcast player right now. But if it's not and you want to go find it, go to bookriot.com slash listen, where you can find the show notes to this and all episodes of the Book Riot podcast. You can shoot us an email, podcast at bookriot.com. Uh, we said to watch out for, get, get your motors running for The Princess Bride which we're going to be reading and talking about later in the summer. We've got deals, deals, deals coming up. We've got half-baked ideas coming up later in December. I just added two to my bear note this over Ooh. vacation, Rebecca. Yeah. I added two. I had, I had two good ones while you were on vacation, too. Okay, so. good. Or did you write them down somewhere? I did, yeah, uh, in, my, in, my, in my bear note. <laughs> okay, all right. So um, we can, we can um, be Ursine half-bakers uh, together. <laughs> Uh, what else is on our? We're gonna talk about. Oh yeah, Transcendent Kingdom. We're reading it. Mm-hmm. That's coming up. We're gonna read it. Um, any other pre work people might want to do if they want to be completely oh, and fully yeah, on the board? We, the HMS BR pod. 
Yeah, we have an episode. I think it's not until October or November. It's um, an adaptation nation where we're going to oh, do yeah. the good. Yeah, we're going to do the Good Lord Bird, Little Fires Everywhere, High Fidelity, and I just added Enola Holmes to the list because obviously. Oh we're my watch God! Bobby did you Brown. see the trailer? Obviously, I did. So I fell in love be... with that thing in two minutes. It's delightful. We can talk. It's a, that's a <laughs> regular is. show kind it's, of a topic. But yeah. Good Lord. It's so I love delightful. Yeah. yeah. So it'll be, we'll be talking about really the first episode of each of those yeah. Good Lord Bird, Little Fires Everywhere, High Fidelity, and Enola Holmes. Um, at this moment, I have watched Little Fires Everywhere and High Fidelity in their entirety. I'm going to try to do all of Good Lord Bird because we got some time. Well, uh, that so doesn't come down to October, right? I don't think that even starts right. till October, so I'm not yeah. sure if it comes out all at once. Yeah, we'll see how many. Uh, that's true. Like how many episodes of it will be out by uh, the time we record. Um, and then Enola Holmes is coming out September 23rd. So if you want to watch some book-related mm-hmm. TV with us and, you know, know what we're... Oh, and we're going to do a... Um, a white smith a uh, white smith a white oh, teeth zadie yes. smith 20 years later that's in october that's so if right. you want to read some zadie smith with us you can do that that was a very much of a oh yeah zs can yeah. write some words um i i uh-huh. i can say that we went, uh, michelle and i cruised through high fidelity um it's so good isn't it i i really enjoyed it though i, I well, well we'll talk we'll save it for the show. <laughs> um, sadly not renewed uh, for season two, yeah, it's a bummer. but maybe it didn't need to be. I don't know. But the Good Lord Bird, the, there's some stills came out this week of um, the production, and I don't think I realized that Ethan Hawke was playing the the, mm. the nominal lead. Um, if you read Good Lord Bird, it's it's set right after the Civil War and told through the eyes of Onion, who is anyway. We don't need to spoil. It. You can go check it out. But uh, Ethan Hawke's a great casting for for the what they're going to do this late stage. Or actually, maybe we're just middle stage Ethan Hawke. He's been around so long, I think of him as being late stage now. But he's, you know, in his early 50s at this point, I think. So he's he's in the middle stage. Um, I think he can be really great. I'm looking forward to that. I don't know. the Showtime, are, are they doing week by weeks? I don't even know who does what now. Not only do I have to keep track of oh. where the damn show is, but I have to figure out the cadence. <laughs> of like, is it, it, is. Is it, is it a drop or we have to wait for it? God dang it. It's week by week. I think it's like Come a on. four or six episode mm. situation. Yeah. And like a, Holmes it, is know, a movie, right? It's a movie, not a series, I oh, think. I thought it was a series, but that might be wrong. Who knows anymore? Well, I can tell you right now, I hope <laughs> anyway, it's a series of movies. <laughs> we will know more about those things by the time we actually do an episode on them. <laughs> I need to prepare you for Amelia Bobby Brown's adorableness in that role, but also Henry Cavill as Sherlock is a... Just, you, just hold on to something tight when you see him come off the train. Just... Make sure you've got one foot on the ground somewhere. Drink a water close by. <laughs> Good gravy. Um, well, on that note. <laughs> that's our show. Those are books. Those are ideas. Have fun storming the castle. Have fun storming the castle. You think we'll make it? Not in a million years. Uh, talk to you later. <laughs> Bye.